Very well read for us. Okay, can you hear me? Lena, you, uh, you turn this one off? Okay, thanks. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us truly to understand the identity of Jesus and what it means to follow Him. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. The story is told by an Australian pastor of one of his congregation members who uh, is a miracle really. She was upgraded from uh, economy class to first class or something like that, right? That never happens to me. That's why it's a miracle. Right? And she was flying from Australia to England. And when she got into the plane... Who should she be sitting beside but this man? Paul Keating, Prime Minister of Australia from 1991 to 1996. Anyway, she sat in the plane and she noticed the stewardesses were very giving this man a lot of attention. So she turned to this man and she said, uh, Hi, my, ni- my name is so-and-so, what's your name? And then Paul Keating says, Oh, I'm Paul Keating. You know, looking at her expectantly. And she looked back at him and... No, it doesn't ring a bell, right? Paul Keating. <laughs> Who's Paul Keating? Right? So, you know, they're on their flight and they're traveling along. And then she, uh, she turns to Paul Keating and she says to him, Oh, are you Australian or are you English? Are you flying back to England, going home? Or, you know, are you, are you just a, 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 an Australia going there as a tourist? And she says, and Paul Keating looks at her and says, No, I'm actually, I'm Australian. And then the girl says to him, what a coincidence, I'm Australian too. Right. <clears throat> now, we won't speculate if this girl was blonde or something like that, right? Okay? But I think that uh, as, we, as we understand this, uh, this, this, this thing that happened, it's a true story, okay? It's a true story. You see, what happened was she didn't know who Paul Keating was and she had failed to respond to him uh, properly, right? She didn't recognize him, she couldn't respond to him as the ex-Prime Minister of Australia. And I think that as we look at this passage, it's all about the same thing, isn't it? We've been looking in the last few chapters, uh, last four chapters, about Jesus and the way that he interacts with the crowd. And what happens here is that large crowds of people are coming to Jesus. Uh, you know, they're coming to him, bringing their sick friends, the demon possessed. Some are coming just to find out what's happening. But nobody really knows the identity of Jesus, and no one knows how to respond to Jesus appropriately. Now, as we look at this passage, you might say, wow, you know, why do we get uh, Matthias to read such a long passage? Well, it's not my fault, right? It's Mark's fault, the writer of the Gospel. Because if you look at these three relatively long stories, they have the same theme. And that theme is the identity of Jesus and the right response to Jesus. The identity of Jesus and how people are to respond to him. Right, so let's look at the, the first passage, which is uh, in chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. Anybody need a Bible? Because you'll need a Bible here. Okay? Now, here we see that actually this passage starts off from the beginning of chapter 4. Because in chapter 4, verse 1, it says that Jesus began to teach by the lake. And what does he do by the lake? Uh, the crowd that they gathered around him was so large that he got into the boat and sat it out, sat in it out on the lake, while the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And what Jesus was doing was he was standing in the boat, teaching the people from this boat. 
And this sermon wasn't 45 minutes, it was the whole day. Okay? And they didn't have air conditioning, there was no shade, there was no microphone, and he was there preaching the whole day, so by the, the end of the day, he was tired. He had hit the wall, he was emotionally and physically spent. And what happens here? Well, verse 35 takes us through to what happens after Jesus finishes preaching. And verse 35, it says there that the day, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Right? The day had come, he is tired, he had enough, let's take the boat and go over to the other side. It was the same boat that he was preaching from. Okay, so leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now one interesting side point if you look at this passage is that there were other boats along with him. Right? That's what it says there in verse 36b. There were other boats with him. So this great miracle that took place wasn't something that the disciples made up. It wasn't something that was concocted. But it was actually witnessed by the other boats that came along. And what happened? Well, if you look up here on this slide, Right, uh, let me get my pointer. Right, uh, what had happened was they were here in Capernaum. Jesus had been preaching, and he's making their they're making their way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they are caught somewhere in the middle of this Sea of Galilee. Can you see that? If you can't see that, it means that you're not sitting close enough to the front. Right? Okay. Now this Sea of Galilee is quite an unusual lake, right? Or see, if you turn the next uh, slide, because. Uh, it is bordered by these big hills or mountains all around the sea. And it creates a very low pressure system in the sea which, which makes it very susceptible to great storms. And according to uh, people who live in the area, storms at night were very unusual. Right? Storms at night were very unusual. But when they happened, they were particularly dangerous and intense. So here they are, the disciples and Jesus, along with the other boats, and they hit this huge storm and the lake is like a washing machine right? okay? the board is being tossed everywhere now if you, it was you, it was me we would panic we would panic but we must remember that as we've been reading the book of Mark who were the disciples? the disciples were not uh, Sunday fishermen right? they were not recreational or amateur sailors these were professional sailors who lived by the Sea of Galilee and fished in the Sea of Galilee all their life Right, so look up here in chapter 1, verse 16. Where did the disciples come from? Right? They were fishermen. They were fishermen. Right? They were live, made their living in the boats, fixing their nets and fishing. So they knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand. And it was unusual for them to panic. So for them to panic, this would have been a really, really, really big storm. So much so that they wake up Jesus and ask Him to help them. Now, isn't that an irony? Here are these professional fishermen, and who are they asking for help? A professional carpenter. Right, okay? What did they expect Jesus to do? Hammer a couple of nails into the boat? Right? So, they turn to Jesus and say, Look, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus is asleep on the boat. That's why it says that it doesn't say that he was pretending to be asleep, right? Jesus is not sort of like, I'll pretend to be asleep. You know, so when they really need me, Right, they'll, they'll turn to me and then now I'll feel like I'm really self-important. No, he was really tired and he was asleep. 
So they turn to him and they basically beg him for help. And what does Jesus do? He does a very strange thing, isn't it? In verse 39. He got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, three words, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I've uh, been caught in a storm once or twice. I used to windsurf and I remember being caught in a storm and it wasn't, just, it wasn't a very, as bad as it was just some heavy rain. Right? Now, the last thing that occurred to me when I was caught in this heavy rain, fearing that I'll be struck by lightning, right, was to say to the wind, right, quiet. And to say to the waves, be still. And the reason is because if I said that, what would have happened? Nothing. Right? The wind would have kept blowing as hard as it would. The waves would still be rocking my surfboard, my, my, my windsurfing board up and down. See, the difference is, if you and I say to the wind and the waves, quiet, be still, nothing happens because we are human. But the difference is, Jesus, when he says those words, the wind does become quiet and the waves are still. Why? Because he is God, isn't it? He is God. Only God has the power and the authority to be able to control nature. So look up here in Psalm chapter 33. It says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars, and he puts the deep into storehouses. Imagine that. He controls the world so much that he can put the waters of the sea into a jar, into jars. And look what he says there in Psalm 106. He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up and he led them through the depths as though as through a desert. You see, it's the same word here in verse 9 as is found there in verse 39 of Mark. Jesus got up and what? Rebuked the wind. All those years ago, when God led the Israelites through the Red Sea, what did he do? He rebuked the Red Sea. And not to labor the point, in Psalm 107, it's the same thing, right? God saves His people. Again, saves His people through the storm. Look what it says there in verse 28. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Who was in the boat with the disciples? It was Jesus, the Son of God, was in the boat of Jesus. And therefore, there was no need to fear, there was no need for terror or panic. But see, the problem with the disciples was they didn't quite understand that, isn't it? See, look what it says there in verse 41. Uh, they were terrified. They asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus said to his disciples in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? See, it's not an intellectual problem that the disciples have. It wasn't as if they didn't have enough information or their IQ was too low. See, the problem was that their heart had not put their faith in Jesus. You saw, Jesus had given them enough evidence to show His power. Over the last few weeks, we've seen that Jesus healed the sick. He made the deaf hear, the blind see, He cast out demons, He even forgave sins which only God do. In chapter 4 verse 11, which you see up here, which we learned last week, they had been given the secrets of the kingdom. See, the problem was not an intellectual problem. 
The problem was a spiritual problem. A problem of the heart. You know, it's like, the problem is, when I look at this passage, I don't know whether you feel what I feel. We come to church, we read the Bible, we go to Bible study, we understand intellectually who Jesus is. I'm sure that, you know, if we did a quiz, we would all do very well on who Jesus is. Jesus is God, Jesus is Christ, Jesus is authority, Jesus is power. But do you really believe that in your heart? Is that something that's really real for you in your heart? I ask myself, you know, do I trust God, do I trust Jesus the same way that a child would trust his father or mother? Totally and implicitly. You know, imagine if tomorrow, uh, you or me, like my uncle in Switzerland, imagine if we were diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. What would you feel? Would you feel fear? Or would you still have great faith that Jesus would watch over you? Imagine if tomorrow, suddenly a member of your family or a close friend suddenly was taken away or had a terrible accident. What would you feel in your relationship to Jesus? Would you still have great faith in Jesus and that He cares for you and loves you and watches over you and has the power and the capacity to make a difference in your life? Or imagine if you have a spiritual mentor or someone in, in, you know, that you've really respected as a Christian for many years you would, you know, maybe you learned that their whole life was a lie or that they've, they've been living in ungodliness or they turn away to false, false doctrine or false living. How would, how would your faith be? Would it withstand the test of hard circumstances? See, what Jesus is saying here is that if you have faith in Jesus and He is God, then it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, we must have faith and that faith must displace our fear. Now last week, uh, some of us were watching this movie, right, in our monthly movie night, The Amazing Grace, which talked about William Wilberforce and how this great politician had set the f- slaves free. And in that movie, uh, his really good friend became the Prime Minister of England and he was the youngest Prime Minister ever. And uh, his friend was dying in bed in one of the scenes at the end. And his friend was holding William's hand and remember what his friend said to William who, uh, no, his friend was a prime minister at the time said to William he said I'm scared I wish I had your faith you see there's a contrast isn't it if you have faith in Jesus if you truly believe him to be God and that he controls everything even death itself then there shouldn't be the fear isn't it the faith should displace fear in your life because He is God and He cares and watches over us. Now, as we move along to the next story, the authority of Jesus in the first miracle was the authority of Jesus over the natural world, right, over the storm. But the authority of Jesus in the second world is over the supernatural world, isn't it? The supernatural world. And here, if you look up here again in the map, okay, Jesus... He, uh, he was here, caught in a storm somewhere, and finally they get over to the Gerasenes area, okay, heals a man of demons, Mark chapter 5, verse 1. And when he lands on the other side, Mark takes great 
pains to describe this demon-possessed man. Doesn't he? We don't know his name, but we're told a lot of information about this man. So look at what it says there in verse 3. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons with his feet. On his feet, sorry. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with the stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want of me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Cut out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went to the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, the, the description of this man would be a horror, horror movie, right? Horror movie setting. In fact, this is a real person, okay? A real person. It was witnessed by the townspeople, witnessed by the disciples. This is a real person. But he's possessed by a very, very strong demon. The first thing we learn about this demon is that he's very powerful. It says there that no chains could bind him. Okay, so I've got my, my, the chain for my dog. Okay? Now, if I were to tie you up, this small little chain, it's so small and tiny, right? Hardly anything, like a string. Okay, I can't break it. Right? Imagine if I tied you up with it, would you be able to break it? No. But imagine the big chains that they would have tied this man up with. But yet, they were unable to hold this man. And not only is this, this demon supernaturally strong, but there are many, many of them inhabiting this poor man. It says there in verse 9 that his name is Legion. Now, a legion is a, is a, is a, is a company of soldiers of 6,000 men. 6,000 soldiers. Now, we don't know how, exactly how many demons there were in this man, but obviously enough to fill 2,000 pigs, isn't it? Okay? Enough to fill it. So, at least 2,000 demons in this poor man. Now, not only was this demon powerful and numerous, but it was very malevolent and wicked and evil and harmful. See, imagine what was this? What was the man doing day and night in, uh, in, in, when he was running around the tombs? He wasn't playing uh, Warcraft on computer, right? He wasn't uh, up watching uh, EPL. He was spending his whole day cutting himself up with rocks. Right? Is it because he hated himself because he was trying to get the demons out? Or is it because the demons were, were such a destructive and malevolent force in his life that he was just cutting himself? And finally, when, the, when, when the, the demons went into the pigs, they destroyed themselves. What did they say about the demons that they were so destructive? So here, this legion is almost equivalent to the storm. If the storm was the untamable force of the natural world, right, then this legion is the untamable force of the supernatural world. But when Jesus confronts this demon, what happens? 
Is Jesus scared of the demon? No, the demon is scared of Jesus. Isn't it? The demon is scared of Jesus. It falls on its knees before Jesus. Look at what it says there in verse um, in verse six, isn't it? He fell on his knees in front of Jesus, and three times we are told that it begs Jesus. Look at verse ten. He says that it begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Verse 12, the demons beg Jesus, send us among the pigs and allow us to go into them. The power of Jesus as God is so powerful that this superhumanly strong and numerous and malevolent spirit begs Jesus. And finally, in verse 13, Jesus is the one that gives the demon permission to go into the pigs. Now, when you think of it, if this were to happen today, right, we'll probably be watching on YouTube, you know. Yeah, or Channel News Asia, right? or reading about Straits Times, because these 2,000 pigs rushing into the lake, I mean, that's a great ecological disaster, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's the end of the pig industry in the area. But, but if you look at this passage, this is a powerful visual testimony of the power of Jesus, isn't it? That Jesus defeated without seemingly any apparent effort this untamable, supernaturally powerful and numerous malevolent spirit Jesus is God now this account is a very bizarre and disturbing account isn't it? this is the only time in the whole Bible that you will see Jesus talking to demons and also you know, the idea of destructive pigs that's also a bit weird isn't it? but what is really bizarre and disturbing is not the pigs or Jesus talking to the demons but what is really bizarre and disturbing is the response of the people. Because look at how the people respond. Right, look at what it says there. Um, verse 15, When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who would be possessed by the legion of demons sitting there and dressed in his right mind, and they were what? They were amazed. No. They were thankful. No. They were grateful for Jesus. No. They were afraid of Jesus. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. See, why were they so afraid of Jesus? See, the disciples were afraid of the storm. We can understand that. But why were these people afraid of Jesus? Well, I think the answer is because Jesus was a force that they could not control that they could not really understand. They sort of thought, wow, this guy, he defeated the, 2000, the legion of 2,000 demons. He must be more powerful. We couldn't control this, this, this legion. and We can't control Jesus as well. Better we just banish him away. Right? Because we can't understand him. And, you know, he's outside the realm of the ordinary, normal, everyday. Better if he, you know, he just goes on his way. And more than that, uh, Jesus, being so powerful, might have also demanded changes in their life. I mean, after all, here was this man, Jesus, who valued this man's life more than 2,000 pigs. Right? Now, it means that, you know, if we allow this uncontrollable force in our, our lives, we might need to change our values about pigs, about our property, about our money, isn't it? So they pled, and they said, Jesus, please leave us alone. Now I know that in the world that we live in today, many people respond to Jesus in the same way. When I was in university, there was this girl who had joined our Bible study group. And she came for a few weeks. 
And then all of a sudden she stopped coming completely. Never heard from her again, never saw her again. And then one day I saw her. And I said, what happened? You were coming to the Bible study group, you were having fun, you know, you got to know people, and all of a sudden you stopped coming. So you disappeared off the face of the earth. And her answer to me was, I'm very happy with my life right now. I'm very happy with my life right now. I've got plans, right? Everything's orderly, everything is in its place. And as she began to study the Bible and realized that Jesus might be real, she realized Jesus might have an impact on her life. And she, she didn't want Jesus to have an impact on her life because she was happy with what she was doing, she was happy with her plans. She didn't want Jesus to come in and be this uncontrollable force which would turn her perfect, happy life upside down. And what she said to me was, please don't tell me anymore, right? Because I'm very happy and you know, if you tell me anymore, it will just disturb my equilibrium and it will disturb my, my perfect, happy life. And I think that's one of the problems, isn't it? Sometimes instead of responding to Jesus in faith, we respond to Jesus in fear. Because we are fearful of what Jesus would do to our relationships. Our relationships that we might have, that he might be unhappy with. We are fearful of Jesus, of what he might do in terms of our view of money, or career, or the things that we watch on the internet, or the movies that we have, or the interests that we have. Instead of responding to him in faith, we are fearful of him. We don't want him to intrude in parts of our lives which we we have got plans for, which we are happy with. And that's what's happening here, isn't it? The people pleaded with Jesus to leave. And Jesus left them. And I think that that can be a lesson for us. If we keep cutting off ourselves to Jesus, we are fearful of Him and not of faith, then Jesus will leave us. Now, as we look at this map again, we come to the last uh, story, the last account, and Jesus from here, there are scenes, He goes back probably to Capernaum, to the other side of the lake. Now, if you look at this map, you'll see that... Uh, uh, he comes back to where he was before. And here he meets a synagogue ruler named Jairus. Now a synagogue ruler is a bit like an elder of a church. Okay? He's, like a, he's like the lay leader who is in charge of the way the synagogue runs. For all you know, Jairus might have been uh, one of the synagogue rulers in Capernaum itself. And this guy is a man probably of very great wealth social standing, prestige. He is like the religious elite. But the only problem is, as powerful, as influential, as high as his social standing, he has a great need. His daughter is sick. In fact, she is dying. In Luke chapter uh, 8, we learn that it's not just one of his daughters, but it is probably his only daughter is dying. As rich as he is, as powerful as he is, as many friends as he has, he can't save his daughter. So he comes and bows at the feet of Jesus. He falls at his feet. But it would be a mistake for us to think that Jairus is a true disciple, a true believer of Jesus. Because remember in chapter 3, we learned this about three weeks ago, chapter 3, next slide, the same synagogue which Jairus was probably the synagogue leader on, there was this great controversy where Jesus had put himself offside with the religious elite. Remember, Jesus had gone to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and healed the man with the withered hand? And as a result, the, the religious elite, they, 
they, they didn't like Jesus very much, isn't it? It says there, right, in verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, I think that Jairus, he doesn't come to Jesus because he loves Jesus. He has great faith in Jesus, but he is desperate. He is a desperate man, and desperate men do desperate things. He comes there because he knows that Jesus is the one person who may be able to help his dying only daughter. So they go, go along, and Jesus is, is very helpful. He says, okay, let's go, let's go to your house, right? Okay? And uh, obviously, his daughter is so sick that usually the sick people get brought to Jesus, but here, she's so sick that she can't leave the house. So Jesus follows Jairus to the home. It must have been excruciating to be Jairus. Imagine your, da- your daughter is dying, and all these crowds are pressing upon you. That's what it says in verse 24. Isn't it? So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. It's a bit like being in an ambulance with someone with a heart attack and you're being caught in a traffic jam, isn't it? Right? You know, you're like, you're, let's hurry up, get to the hospital, man. And like, you know, the sirens are blaring and then no one gives way. And that's what's happening. Jesus is going to Jairus and they're slowly making their way home and all of a sudden they come to a dead stop. Why? Not because the traffic light is red, but because they encounter another woman, uh, sorry, another person, a person with great need as well. And if you see this woman, she is the complete opposite of Jairus. We don't, you know, at least we know Jairus' name, right? We don't even know what this woman's name is. Because she is so lowly in social standing that we don't, nobody knows who she was. She is the unknown woman who was bleeding for 12 years. Right, and this woman, it says there in verse 25, had been bleeding for 12 years. Can you imagine bleeding for 12 years? How uncomfortable that would be. Not like, you know, you don't, it's not a cut in your hand where you put plaster over, right? But menstrual will be bleeding for 12 years. And it says there, verse 26, she had suffered under a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Okay, now this is not, uh, this is not a, 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 a say that medical profession is bad or something, right? But she spent all her money on doctors and nothing happened. She was getting worse. But she comes up to Jesus in verse 27 and she says to herself, if I can just touch his cloak, I will be healed. And she does. She touches her cloak and immediately, it says that in verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now, what happens next is really strange when you consider the context of the story. Jesus is trying to go help this poor man's daughter who's dying. And Jairus is probably wringing his hands, tearing out his hair, going, What are you doing, Jesus? We are in a hurry here, right? And here you are, you're asking people, Who touched me? Who touched me, right? It's like, it's like being in a rugby scrum, right? And you say, Hey, who touched me? Who touched me, right? Someone touched me, okay? So, why does Jesus waste his time doing this? And already the poor woman, right, she suffered for 12 years and now you want her to come and, and, and fall on the floor before you and embarrass herself in front of the whole world and tell, her, tell you what happened? What is the point? Why does Jesus bother to do this? Well, I think the reason is because if you read properly, you will see that the woman was desperate. Just like Jairus, she was desperate. But she came to Jesus with almost a superstitious belief, isn't it? A sort of a magical belief. If I just touch his clothes, I will get better. And what Jesus is saying, actually, she needs to come to Jesus more than just superstitiously or magically and just touch his clothes, but she needs to believe in him. 
believe in Him in everything that He means that He is God that He is the Son of God that He is the Christ now I don't know about you but when I was younger you know, I got a lot of weird, weird things about me right? when I was younger before I became a Christian my grandmother went on the QE2 Queen Elizabeth II this big boat it's a huge boat right um, and I don't know where she went to and she brought back for me this little coin uh, it might even be a casino thing right? I, I don't know it's a coin like, it's this QE2 thing anyway for some reason I considered it a lucky charm and I kept it with me all the time I always had it in my pocket now I'll be fiddling it in my pocket checking whether it's in my pocket and I carried it everywhere it was my lucky charm and I think that in some way Right, that's this woman was like treating Jesus like a talisman, like a lucky charm. If I just touch his clothes, I will get better. And now she touches clothes, she's better. She's got what she wanted, she can go home. But Jesus is saying that that is not the way that you relate to him. He is not a lucky charm, he is not a talisman. He is here as God and we are to put our complete faith in him. See, I wonder whether some of us are like that, you know. We only come to Jesus, why? Because we need help in our exams. Or we only come to Jesus, you know, when uh, we've got a job interview, or we need a, to pass our driving test. And we just come to Jesus like a lucky charm. Like some sort of talisman that you hold in your hand so that you can get through some difficult time. But Jesus is saying here, no. He is not a lucky charm. He's not some superstitious thing that you, that you, know, you, you do so you, he can help you in that immediate, desperate situation. But Jesus demands that he is really the only thing that you put your faith in in this world. See, come with me again. That's why you need to look at the passage carefully. Come with me and look at what Jesus says to the woman, right? In verse, uh, verse 34. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering now if you look there it says that daughter your faith has healed you the word healed there the original word literally is the word saved your, word, your faith has saved you your faith has healed you right go in peace that it is more than just a physical healing that Jesus wants from this woman it is her faith so that she may be saved and I think that that's such an important lesson for us we do not just come to Jesus in our desperation in our time of need and forget about him now, coming back again to Jairus, while well, all this is happening, very long delay apparently, Jairus' desperate situation has turned into a hopeless situation. Because the people come from the house and what they say? Too late. Game over. Right? Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But what does Jesus say? Look at what Jesus says in verse 36. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. You see, the synagogue ruler Jairus had come to Jesus with a little kernel of faith. An immature faith, uh, unformed faith, more like wishful thinking, right? Maybe Jesus can help me, maybe Jesus. But now his hopes are all like zero, right? Oh, Jesus can't save anymore. She's dead. Oh no, it's all over. But Jesus says, Look, you, you do not understand who I really am. I am God, I can even raise the dead. Have faith in me. See, as we look at this passage, it is about going to God and recognizing that Jesus 
must have our faith all the time, not just in desperate situations. You know, I prayed with my relatives before they get cancer, uh, and uh, we pray, and then uh, they get better. And then when they get better, you know what they say? They'll say, "Oh, actually, it wasn't really your prayer that helped. It was the medicine, right? Or maybe it wasn't the medicine. Maybe it's because I'm actually quite a strong person. You know, it's a strong constitution that overcame uh, the cancer." And I think that sometimes that's the way we go to God. We go to God in our great need, isn't it? Like Jairus in a time of desperation. But we don't really believe, isn't it? Not believe in the way that Jesus wants us to believe, that He is really God. And that belief in Jesus must so consume us, so fill us that it changes our life. The way we live, what we do, the way we serve at church, the way we, we, we repent of our sins. Because Jesus is not someone that you just go to in desperate times. But He is there in your life all the time. Now as we come to the end of these three stories, Jesus is God. He has the power of God. The power over the natural, the power over the supernatural, the power over sickness, even death itself. And we are to have faith in Him. But it doesn't mean that you'll never have problems in your life. It doesn't mean that you know you will never have financial problems or marriage problems or relational problems or work problems or study problems. No. These things will still happen, isn't it? But Jesus is still God and He is watching over you. So what is the quality of your faith? Ask yourself a question. What is the quality of your faith? Is your faith strong enough to withstand the difficult times that will come? Will it, will it give way to the circumstances if it's too difficult? What is the quality of your faith? Is your faith strong enough so that it will force you to make changes in your life even though it's difficult? Or will you fear Jesus instead? What is the quality of your faith so that does it inhabit every part of your life? Or do you just go to God and go to Jesus in your time of need? Now, in conclusion, I want to uh, show you this logo, right? Okay? I don't know, have you seen this logo? Uh, you might see it in some motorcycles. I often see it on motorcycles. I don't know why you see it on motorcycles, right? But, um, you know. The logo says no fear. Okay? Sometimes you see those things with the angry eyes. It means no fear. No fear. But you often ask yourself, well, you know, sometimes when you see those motorcyclists driving this no fear things, and you ask them, why, why is there no fear? Is that because you just don't worry? Right? Or is it because you, know, you, you have no common sense to realize that if you drive very quickly and bust through traffic that you might end up dying or being fatally maimed or wounded? No, I, I think as Christians, there is no fear. And why is there no fear? Because we have Jesus. And if Jesus is God, and as we've seen, as witnessed by people, He has power over nature, the supernatural, sickness, even death, then He has power to watch over us. You see, if, uh, next slide. If we truly believe in Jesus, and Jesus is who He says He is, then we are like the disciples. We are in the boat with Jesus. If we believe in Jesus, Jesus inhabits us. Through the Holy Spirit, we are in Jesus and Jesus will continue to watch over us even 
in good times and bad times. So how is your faith? Is your relationship with Jesus just an intellectual one? Or is it one that is in your heart? Is it one that, that so consumes you and changes you? Then everything you do, right, in, in the things that you do at church, in the way you relate to people, in, in the way that you change your lives, that, that your faith in Jesus is what is motivating and changing you? Or are you living with a faith which is small, which is just partial, maybe intellectual or just in desperation or in different small segments of your life? Because that's not the way that we relate to Jesus. We must relate to Jesus and put our faith in Him, in everything, and let it shape all of our life. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that Jesus is your Son, the Son of God, and that He has power over the world, power over the natural world, power over the supernatural world, that He is indeed greater than any spiritual force known to man, that He is greater over sickness, greater than, than death itself. May we never fall victim to fear, fear of circumstances. May we never fall victim to fearing Jesus and the changes that He might, wrought, right, uh, might change in our life. That we may never feel, feel desperate and just use Jesus in our moment of need, but that He may truly change our lives, that our encounter with Jesus will transform us and totally change the way we live and view the world. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.